Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is intended to educate as well as entertain, and it has a more serious purpose. We are big supporters of the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, a new charity which you can check out on ft.com forward slash FLIC. It's the most disadvantaged in society who often get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans and similar artful devices to part people with their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This really is a great cause and I urge you please to support it. The podcast is sponsored by Sentio and I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than some other platforms. Third, it has features I have never seen in other systems. My favorite is the ability to go into 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's much faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com forward slash BTBS for behind the balance sheet for more details. Former Goldman Sachs partner Jim O'Neill, or more properly Lord O'Neill, is best known as the man who coined the term BRICS. He correctly identified that this group of emerging markets would drive global growth and published a paper on it over 20 years ago. In this wide discussion, we talk about the BRICS, about why for the first time in 30 years of close study of the country, he's puzzled on Chinese policy and what inevitably lower Chinese growth means for the global economy. Of course, we discuss his beloved Manchester United. We discuss kids' education, which is a cause close to both our hearts, and how his involvement in the antimicrobial review, leading to the publication of the book Superbugs, was the most interesting work he's ever undertaken. Jim is quite critical of central banks, who he thinks are behind the curve, and he gives his assessment of the long-term outlook for inflation. Listen to the end to learn why he calls himself a spoiled brat. I hope you really enjoy this. So, Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, can you just start by saying, look, you became the chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Was that always your ambition? I mean, you went to a comprehensive school. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
could you even have imagined that you'd become a, a partner of Goldman Sachs? And how, what led you there? No, <laughs> not in the slightest. Um, at, 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 the, at the heart of how my life has evolved, I think, I mean, who knows, but I think uh, it relates to a, a very key uh, peculiarity of my both my mother and father's upbringing and where we lived. So my mum came from a Cheshire farming family and my dad came from a uh, inner Mancunian Irish descent publican family. So very different backgrounds. And I'm not entirely sure quite even how they really managed to stay together, you know, or <laughs> met, even met really. Um, but I guess for that reason, the genes I've got from each of them are quite different. <laughs> and, and, and the even bigger uh, coincidence uh, was that uh, we were raised um, on a road called Style, Roll, Style Road in Gatley in South Manchester, or on the borders of South Manchester and Cheshire. Indeed, my story is exactly that. The road was split down the middle. One side was Gatley, Leafy, Cheshire. The other was Gatley, not so leafy, Withinshaw in Manchester. And we lived on the Withinshaw side, which meant you had to, uh, unless you had a lot of money, which we didn't, uh, you'd had to go to a primary and junior school uh, in an area very close to us called Crossacres in Withinshaw, which is, was and remains very tough. And so it meant at the, the most young age, I had to, I, I daily experiences of dealing with people from very different uh, backgrounds. I would, I would get beaten up at primary school for being called a Gatley snob every other day. Uh, and then uh, I'd go back and at the weekend, I'd, you know, go to church with nice people from Gatley, Cheshire. Um, so it was quite, you know, and of course you never focus on these things till, and maybe it, maybe it wasn't relevant, but I think it certainly meant that I had sort of some kind of adaptability to how I had to deal with things. And it sort of, I think, reappeared often through my life. Um, my dad, because of his background, was obsessed about education and because he, he'd had to leave school at 14. And I think somewhere in his own murky past, there might have been other, other, other relations that had come from better parts that he'd... He never let us know about it, but I think they'd had good educations and professional careers. So he was extremely eager for my three sisters and me to have a, a decent education, even though we went to a very tough initial schooling. And, and so he, he essentially forced us to go to university. I mean, I, the last all I wanted to do, which was another side of where I grew up with these guys, I just wanted to, you know, we have sympathies on football, I think. Um, you know, the famous Red Army, uh, which terrorised Britain in the 1980s, was led by the Withinshaw Reds. And I I was raised at school with a lot. <laughs> so I used to play, you know, to, the, the, to, the way to stop myself being beaten up by them was to play football with them. Uh, and, but, so that's what I wanted to do. But my dad was like, no, you got, you know, you're going to go to a better school, you're going to do A-levels and you go to university. And so after that, I didn't really, I, I wasn't quite quite sure what I was going to do. And the truth of the matter was um, I remained completely obsessed in playing football and having a good time. And it was only when it came to the end of my degree about getting a job, I thought that sounds like serious. And so I actually stayed on to do a PhD and went through the whole, as much of social security 
sorry, social science funding I could get uh, before I had to take responsibility. And I ended up in the city, uh, partly to get rid of the debts I had. I didn't, I didn't have the slightest idea what the hell I was really doing. And uh, I just gradually got into this path and Goldman was so desperate uh, to hire somebody to replace the one and only David Morrison in the early 90s. They were daft enough to offer me a partnership. Wow, that's a great. And, and that was it, really. <laughs> that's brilliant. I love that. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about economics, but I was just yeah. curious because you wrote that book or co-authored a book, Superbugs, and you yes. were asked by yes. the prime minister to chair... Yeah the review and antimicrobial resistance. Is there something in your background that's pharmaceutical or is it just? So that, so then, no, it nothing whatsoever. So let me give you, a, hopefully, a very potted story of that. So when I left Goldman uh, nearly 19 years later, uh, yeah, and the circumstances of me leaving, I'd, I'd already always observed and been quite conscious of the circumstances in which senior people had left, I'd, you know, I'd become, I'd been a partner the whole 19 years I'd been there, which is way beyond the average duration of a partner of about 10 years, I think. And I, I didn't think my ego would pr probably cope with being told at some point, you've got to leave, as is inevitable in a competitive place like Goldman. So I decided I was going to leave before I got told that. <laughs> um, and I, and, and I, you know, the moment I chose for whatever reason, it was partly because I wasn't really enjoying chairing GSAM. Uh, it was great because I left with no animosity and no hangups or anything. And uh, I, but, and also I developed this sort of mantra that, because of course, compared with most human beings, I was very fortunate being a partner of a firm that went public. I didn't, you know, I didn't have to do anything. So I developed this mantra, if it can't be better, it's got to be different about what I would do. And I had no idea what it meant, but it was, initially it was to stop me being dragged into starting off my own fund or being, you know, getting involved in a fund or whatever. And uh, it, it, it resulted in, and I followed it pretty diligently. So I kept saying no to the things that came that way. And it led me into the world of public policy. So my, my role in everything to do with, things I'm heavily involved in now, Northern Powerhouse and stuff like that on rebalancing and so-called leveling up. That originated for that reason. And then on the back of it, I got approached by the Treasury on behalf of the PM. Would I lead this review into something called antimicrobial resistance, which I could not even pronounce? <laughs> and the guy that asked me said, before you uh, say what is that and think about saying no, I'm pretty aware that your motto is uh, now... If it can't be better, it's got to be different. And and when I, my, my wife does have a, a scientific background and she knew about it. And I, as I joke to people, she, she said it'd be the first time in 30 years, not only do I understand a bit about what you're doing, but I, that I'm also even interested. <laughs> uh, and I thought, listen, this is seems like a colossal, truly global thing. Uh, I'll learn something. Uh, and I knew it would be temporary as a review. And I thought, and I thought, why not? And it's actually, Steve, the most interesting thing I've ever done in my life. Oh, really? And did it teach you much about the pandemic? So when the pandemic came, yes. were you yes. sort of fully armed and equipped yes. with all the, the knowledge? Or yeah. Yes. Yes. The, I mean, not in all aspects, but yes. Uh, the, and the reason why I say it was um, uh, probably the most interesting thing I've ever done in my life is it's multifaceted, but uh, linked to that question, 
you know, I, I had no idea about antimicrobial, about, it's basically at the core of it, the people, the growing resistance uh, of antibiotics to, to the bugs that live in, in our bodies and in life. Um, and I had no idea what an issue it was. And I had no idea about the scale of damage a world with no antibiotics could be. And, and our review became famous because we, I, what I, what, and the reason why they asked me is, I, is, is because of the brick thing. And I, they thought I had res, sort of a voice in the emerging world where this problem's big. Um, and so what, what we did is uh, we, we redid the 2050 scenario that made the brick thing popular for a world where AMR would escalate to be a serious, massive problem. And it led us to concluding that by 2050, there could be 10 million people a year dying. That's 10 million. Uh, and an accumulated loss of $100 trillion. Uh, and so amongst the reasons why I was prepared for uh, the economic and other aspects of, of, of COVID was that, you know, I knew that there was infectious disease things out there that can cause global devastation. And uh, as as... We also, at the end of the review, came up with 29 specific recommendations. One was about much greater, or two of them were crucial to this. One, one was uh, wash your hands in warm, soapy water uh, while you're singing uh, happy birthday. Uh, so, so better uh, personal cleanliness, and certainly, and especially in hospital settings or anything like that, is vital to stopping the spread of uh, infectious diseases. Uh, and of course, that's crucial to this pandemic. Uh, and then secondly, we also recommended a much bigger use of vaccines. Um, and we learned that pre-COVID, there was only really three pharmaceutical firms really in the vaccine business. And because the economics of it suck. Uh, and they all, you know, what I, and we'll get into this, I'm sure. I, what I really learned is, a, is a, a massive belief in what I'd call profit with purpose. Mm. You know, having been the chief economist of Goldman through the crisis, I'd seen plenty of reasons to think about that way also. Mm. But, you know, I was shocked when I, you know, we, we said the world could lose $100 trillion if these 29 interventions are implemented, which should cost $42 billion, billion over a, uh, a decade, you'd stop 10 million people dying. So it's something like a 2,000, 200,000, sorry, 20,000% return. And I, I, I was shocked as to how narrow pharmaceutical companies think. They basically think the economics of vaccines and uh, antibiotics suck, so they don't want to do it, unless governments are going to pay them for it, which is what's happened during COVID. Yeah. And I've, I've actually been on, uh, for much of 2021, uh, I was on the UK's G7 uh, Health Task Force. I co-headed co uh, the financing part of it with uh, uh, Manoush Shafiq. And, uh, and um, very interestingly, I was a commissioner on something that became known as the Monty Commission, an independent European commission about trying to make the world a better place, um, chaired by Mario Monty. And we had some, some big views, including trying to restructure global health and global finance. So I, I, it's meant I've been very involved in all that. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, you, you've got your CV. I mean, it, it covers pages. I mean, it was. <laughs> I was trying to figure out. I mean, how could you be doing all these? I mean, imagine some of the stuff that you've now let let go. But let, yeah. I mean, let, well, yeah, yeah. My life is that that the, the Monty Commission's finished. 
the G7 health thing is uh, obviously finished. So my life's a tiny bit, uh, I'm, I'm not quite as phonetically busy uh, at the moment than I have been for a while. It's nice. Is it, I mean, you should be retired, right? You should be relaxing. You know, to be honest with you, uh, the thought of sitting around, I don't, I don't think because of how interesting and in, uh, professionally my life has been, I think I'm probably in the camp that that couldn't cope with whatever sitting around relaxing means. I, I think I'd probably struggle with that, to be honest. Yeah, no, I I, I, I agree. If, you, if United were uh, run or owned by a better bunch of human beings and there was... I'd be going to watch them every week still. So that I could cut in that world, I'd be all right. But yeah, don't tell me you aren't going to the matches. I don't go. I don't. I gave my season ticket up 10 years ago uh, out of distaste for the ownership. Uh, I, I do go. I go to away games and I occasionally go to Old Trafford because a lot of my mates still have season tickets. So I can piggyback on the back of them. And I have to say, this morning, the day we're chatting, we've. we've uh, we, we've survived the first leg of a Champions League game, and I, and I might try and get to the Old Trafford re- return and go through the fatalistic yet again of seeing United kicked out of Europe while I'm there. <laughs> oh, but I mean, you must be che- more cheerful about your team because they're fourth in the league. And uh, no, no, I'm not. I can't stand uh, the slow erosion of Manchester United's staggering global brand with these outrageous owners um you know they, they themselves to in, in in a way that also has influenced how i think about so much it's a the ownership of manchester united is a is one of the most live vivid illustrations of profit without purpose uh it's horrible so i mean the shares are languishing i mean the shares have done yeah, I mean, nothing. When nothing. you think about the value of media properties yeah. in the last ten years, the shares have the shares have done nothing. I mean, in I think they're five percent higher than they were when they first did the IPO. So I mean, obviously, uh, yeah. you can argue the IPO was overvalued, and obviously, the value of the team is somehow linked to the performance on the field. But yeah. so, I mean, are they a good investment? There, I mean, no, not no, they're not. Uh, I listen. I think. Um, it is. I'm glad you raised that because most people, because of how how well the Glazers extract money, uh, and because of the sponsorship deals they did in the past, a lot of people seem to think it's been like some massive financial success. But actually, any idiot that owned the shares, and I, in this regard, by the way, the background you and I come from, I don't quite get how the clients of a couple of sizable institutional investors that do own them. Don't give them a hard time because it's at a time when what what was before the past six months, the best ever era for owning U.S. shares. United's performance has been diabolical. Yeah, I mean, so it's been just as bad as an investor as it has been as a supporter. No, I, I mean, I I get that, but I mean, you at one point were part of a, a group that were interested in taking over the club. I mean. Why has nobody bought it? I mean, oh gosh. Well, this is this is part of the. I, I call it the most unstable equilibrium I've ever come across, because of the because of the the game of global live media rights. Um, there is this staggeringly inherent value for truly global brands. 
And uh, as I, I experienced, one of the things I experienced during those crazy few days of the so-called Red Knights, United's brand is, is, despite the performance, still just astonishingly, astonishingly huge. I, the only place I've traveled to in the two years of COVID, bizarrely, was Uzbekistan, which, by the way, was a beautiful trip. Why did you go there? Uh, I was asked by the government to participate in a forum because they 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 superficially appear to be the latest country that's trying to you know sort of do a let's call it do a Georgia of the day that you know ironically at a time when aspects of the liberal capitalist model are being rolled back they're trying to embrace it uh, so it's very interesting but I, I I actually I said I'd only do it if I could travel around for a week with my wife and so we went to all the truly historic Silk Road places. It, it was fascinating. But the point of me raising it is that every adult over, over, you know, that could speak English that I conversed to, within 10 minutes, the banging on about Manchester United. It was like, it was astonishing. I mean, I kind of knew this kind of thing from my professional life all over the world, but I hadn't quite realised in a place like Uzbekistan it would be. And, you know, and this is, this is, and so um, to get, to turn it to your, back to your question, you know, the the owners know that 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 in this artificial world of, of value within media content, United has this massive notional premium. So, uh, you know, if you spoke to a sports media expert, they'd say United's probably worth anywhere from three to six billion pounds today. But the problem is, uh, and the Glazers would sell if somebody gave them money towards the end of that, I think, but. There's no lunatic in the world that would do. There's nobody that's smart enough that would do that. Who of the few people who have that money, and even bigger, the, the number of people that could actually do that is tiny. Sure. And so it just sits there, you know, allowing these people to extract cash out of Manchester United, and you know the saga goes on, and we replace one manager with another. Okay. Well, you know, I wish you luck, my elder <laughs> son has become fascinated with football and, you know, he does the fantasy football. And I believe he's a Manchester United supporter, but he won't admit it. He won't tell me what team he's supporting. But um, the, the fantasy football has been really fascinating, actually. Uh, it's a very, you know, it's a peculiar statistical thing. And he's he's quite active in it, you know, so he's quite, he's trading. So I, I'm I'm encouraging I'm, in, I'm encouraging that. Listen, the reason that we're doing this was you wrote this fantastic article for Project Syndicate about China. Yeah, and you said you said well, there's a couple of things that we you know people need to be aware of the 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 crackdown, the regulatory clampdown on Chinese private companies, which obviously the for-profit education sector looks like it's going to disappear and. Yeah. It's stifling private sector risk taking, and you mentioned um, the government having to do well. They've had this very aggressive clampdown on anti-COVID measures, and at yeah. some point they're going to have to release that, which is going to be a, it's going to be difficult for them, I, I guess. Yeah. You didn't mention the Evergrande. I mean, presumably because you feel the government has induced that, and they've got a plan to manage their way out of that for that. But there's lots of things happening I in hope, China. I hope they have a plan. So what 
what you, I mean, you 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 talked very eloquently in the article, but you didn't say well what what they should do about it. I mean, what what can they do about it? So, I mean, the, it's got the, big implications for the rest of the world, right? I mean, what? Yeah, hugely. I mean, listen, going back to why, uh, even why I got involved in AMR is because of the BRICS thing, and of course, China was at the center of the BRICS thing, and China actually is the only BRICS country that's delivered uh, what we assumed 20 years later. And China's been the single single most important marginal positive contributor to global GDP for the past 20 years, more than the US. So yes, anything that goes badly wrong in China uh, economically is going to affect everyone. Um, so you're right. What, what you didn't mention is that the, the real theme of my article was that I'm not sure for the first time in 30 years that I actually understand what's going on in China, policy-wise. I always, I became infatuated, well, like most people, I became infatuated with China the first time I went in 1990. And I really started to become uh, aware of its great importance during the Asian financial crisis. Uh, and I, 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 and, I, and I, I, I kidded myself, and still do, that ever since then I've kind of understood their policy reaction function and the broad framework of uh, almost like uh, extremely good risk mitigation and, and very good risk return economic managers. Uh, and it served me well thinking that way until the past two or three years. And uh, I say all of that because I don't know whether they've got a plan about Evergrande and the fallout Um, for two reasons. One is because so many people write about the scale of the interconnected issues in real estate and local authorities appears to be such that once you start to have a go at some of the biggest, you know, where does it finish? Yes, well, <laughs> and and then the second bit, which is the more substantive, subtle part of my article, is what is actually really you know they could have done this any time the past few years. Uh, what's what's motivated the timing of all these things? Is it something to do with the peculiar factions inside the higher echelons of the Chinese Communist Party, and it's and therefore temporary? essentially crackdowns on opponents of, of President Xi? Or, or is it indeed some much deeper new philosophical desire to literally get rid of these many, many uh, billionaire-type Chinese people that they think threaten the, the purest model of what they want? And I don't, I don't think yet we know the answer, you know. And there's a danger in what I, I guess another part of my article is and trying to be sort of humble is just to have an open mind. I mean, you look at what's emerged in Russia the past six months, you know, there's a grave danger in thinking you understand where these characters are trying to go. Yeah. Uh, and we don't really know what President Xi as a third term guy really wants to achieve is is it that he really wants to sustain the communist dictatorship even more uh to a degree in which actually penalizes 
private sector wealth or not? And we're, you know, I think we're going to, you know, it's a hugely, hugely important question of which how he deals with the Evergrande issue is just one of many endless pieces. And I think, you know, the next 12 months, as often with anything to do with China, but particularly because of the timing of all of this, is is absolutely fascinating and front and center to China fathom out what's going to happen to the world economy. Yeah, and uh, of course, it's even more difficult to understand because nobody's been able to go there. Right, right. So on the COVID thing, that that in itself is uh, such a, a mammoth test. I mean, it seems pretty obvious from the evidence we've seen in, in virtually everywhere else with, with Omicron that this is a hugely uh, infectious uh, variant, but it's not unless you really got underlying problems that life-threatening and so the idea that you're going to get rid of that inside your country is just bananas yeah and uh if that's going to be his policy then then china on top of what if it wasn't already enough of an issue with what we touched on a minute ago every other week they're going to be having to shut down some part of China in a significant way to supposedly stamp it out, which is crazy. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the, presumably they'll have to they'll, they'll accept that they're, you know, the the downsides of the Omicron virus and and these otherwise. I mean, Hong Kong's going to lose right. its status as a, presumably. I mean, it's going to lose its status as an international financial center. No, I, I mean, it's a, the the whole thing. I, I mean, I. I'm not a China expert. I'm, I'm, I, think, I think my message is on that is that anybody that claims they are, one should be careful of trusting them. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, you you know, we talked earlier about, you know, you can't get your, you can't get inside the head of the leader of a country, whether it's China or Russia, it, it's impossible to understand and you can speculate but i mean uh, i don't know that anybody's going to get anywhere by 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 doing so yeah, the, the consequences of slower growth in china mm-hmm. therefore are slower growth everywhere i think that's i think that's right i mean i'll try to answer this a bit more simply if you if you look at the past if you look at the four decades to 2020 global gdp growth has been 3.3, 3. 3.3, 3.9, 3.7. And so the last two decades, stronger than the first two. And the the major, not major, the dominant reason why world growth was stronger the last two decades was China. Um, so if China uh, slows significantly, and unless the only other place in the planet that has the potential at some point to make up would be India, uh, unless the US suddenly starts growing at 4%, which that seems very unlikely on a sustained basis, the world will go back towards something closer to 3%. Um, so it is as, ba- you know, it's as simple as that. You know, China's become a 14, sorry, $16 trillion uh, dollar economy. And, uh, you know, uh, that means that what happens to them going forward, if it goes from 16 back to 10, or if it goes from 16 to 25, 
that is going to be the most important thing for the world economy the next decade. It's not going to go down, though, is it? I mean, I mean, you know, let me make sure I don't get things out of perspective myself here. There is a there is a very gloomy scenario which which I've I've argued against for the best part of thirty five years, but some people, particularly in the US have been manically on this path ever since. Uh, famous people that I've argued in public against often and they've been wrong. But there is a path where uh, China uh, makes big mistakes as it's trying to manage these things and the, there becomes some kind of balance of payments crisis. The RMB collapses uh, and and uh, they get into a vicious circle of debt fault, uh, capital outflow that they can't control, RMB halves in value, you know, and uh, we've seen some of that in Russia the past two years. Russia's now no longer one of the world's top, in, in dollar terms, no longer one of the top uh, 10 economies of the world because of little bit of this kind of thing. Um, so there is there is a downside scenario. I, 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 despite my concerns and my sort of openness about not really understanding what they're up to, I, I still believe the Chinese... Are savvy enough and alert enough to nip something like that in the bud before it gets going. As we, we saw a little window of that in 2016, and they stopped it really successfully. Um, so I think that is probably unlikely. The real the real thing is: is China actually going to st- get a, to be as big as the US as many people like me assumed? And I I would say right now in the next decade, that's now an open question. Whereas yeah. Three years ago, I would have said, def- definitely it's going to happen. I mean, uh, my perception, uh, there was a good article in the Financial Times yesterday about President Xi and chasing people, Chinese people who had fled overseas and trying to mm-hmm. repatriate them, yeah. either le- you know, through legal means or through less legal means. And um, yeah. you know, my perception of that was that this is he doesn't want the capital to flow out of the country. No. And that's part of the reason for, you know, being so um, active against Didi and the IPO that wasn't approved, so active against Ant Financial. Yeah. And this is about, you know, keeping the money at home because at the end of the day, if he keeps the money at home, he's better protected. And obviously yeah. the, the, the surplus shrank very significantly as people, and you could, I mean, you you could understand if you were in China and you had a lot of money, you could understand that you'd want to get some of that outside the country. I mean, that is. Well, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure, as I'm sure you pick up, but I'm kind of reasonably confident that already for about the past five, six years, quite, it's been one way or the other, quite a lot of wealthy Chinese individuals have been either slowly or as quickly in some cases as possible trying to get money out of the place so yeah. it makes huge amount makes a huge amount of sense particularly yeah. if you aren't sure of what the political complexion is going, is right. going to look like so right. Right. um but you know we will never well we'll know in a couple of years i suppose no exactly well, we'll know we'll know afterwards <laughs> yeah well, and predicting it is going to be Terribly bad, but the, terribly difficult. But the, I mean, the BRICS more widely probably going to have a good um, decade, aren't they? I mean, obviously, we're as we speak, we're looking at a very um, 
difficult situation in in Ukraine. Yeah. But you know, my assumption is that we're going to have higher metals, higher energy prices. India has got the demographics going for it. So other than China, the other BRICs are going to do pretty well this decade, aren't they? I mean, let me start by just sort of not leaving your audience with a distorted view of where I think China's probably heading. You know, despite what I've flagged, I have no reason to assume that China won't grow by 45 to 5% the next decade. Uh, it just might be a bit more volatile than before. And that, that rate of growth is actually what we assumed would happen this decade as part of the BRICS story. So, you know, I think, it's, I think that's probably the best starting assumption. Uh, and I, but I think, Steve, you make a very interesting uh, uh, observation. You know, we've just gone through the 20th year of the whole BRIC thing. So I've done endless uh, media and conference things about, about what it means, where it stands, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, of course, against the background of most people basically thinking it was all a bit of a joke and the, the second decade was, was, was so bad, et cetera, et cetera. But when you, when, you, when you point out, as you've just done, the crucial role of commodity prices for two of them, Brazil and Russia, that's why they had a brilliant first decade. Yeah. And, and that's why they both had a disastrous second decade. Yeah. Uh, and so if we're in, a, in an up commodity cycle, these guys, another way of thinking about it, these guys have to keep making even bigger mistakes at home to make their economies weak because they are completely commodity dependent. So Brazil and Russia, are all, Brazil definitely will have a better decade in the 20s than it had in the 10s. Russia, given, given the, the, the wildness of what's going on, is a little bit trickier, but I wouldn't be surprised if that turns out to be the case too because oil and gas are so central. Uh, and you're right on India. Um, I'm personally quite disappointed with, with the, the eight years of, of lack of reform under Modi, but their demographics are so spectacular. You know, this place can grow at 6 7%, even without major reform. And if they really did get the reform bug, India could grow by 10% easily the next decade. So uh, if you put all of that together... Arithmetically, it's a bit tricky because China's twice the size of the others put together. So what happens in China will affect the average. But adjusted for that, the other, you're right. The other three collectively will definitely do better than they did in the in the tens. I, I, I'm presuming. And um, where do you stand on inflation? I mean, yeah, I haven't yeah. heard anybody talk about transitory for a while. But I mean. <laughs> Isn't it, you know, I've got three, let's call it, uh, philosophical observations about this. The first one is, it, you know, I think, I think the debate about it itself is, is currently another victim stroke highlighter of this 24-7 universe in which we've, we live in, where now... Even among central banks, seemingly, given how hawkish they've started to talk, everybody assumes we've got inflation forever uh, because it, it, it's been going up more than we've expected, and so that means that's it. Uh, it could. 
but it's quite interesting that for certainly the past 18 months, central bankers were constantly saying it's only temporary. Second thing I would say, um, and I learned this for so long in my Goldman years, at least as it relates to the US, uh, I'm an avid follower of the University of Michigan five-year inflation expectation survey, and it's hardly budged. So I don't think we've got the 1960s and 1970s entrenched circular dynamics yet. Um, and in that regard, I, I, I would say, as part of the second bit, I, I'm sort of agnostic. I, I thought... It seemed very obvious to me that inflation as a statistical CPI thing would be a lot higher a year ago. But uh, it's not obvious to me what will happen from here, mm. uh, which takes me to my third thing. It obviously depends on policy. And I, actually, I, I was uh, uh, kindly asked, along with three others, to appear before the UK Treasury Select Committee uh, a couple of weeks ago. And in fact, the FT rather naughtily exaggerated quite a few of my comments. I, I did say them, but the FT built, built them into quite a thing. Um, you know, you stand back from it, quite why we have, so, you know, uh, we we should have short rates quite a bit higher, in my opinion. The, the, the days of QE serving any positive purpose have long since gone. And... You know, I was taught when I was doing my basic economics that the, the you know the underlying level of interest rates should should be pretty close to some kind of level of nominal GDP, and so you know I would have thought we should be in a world where short rates are a, a, a good two percent higher than where we are. Now they're not they're not I'm not in saying that saying let's raise rates two percent tomorrow. But uh, somehow we've got to get, if we really want to control inflation, we've got to have a monetary policy framework that gives us a chance of doing so. Uh, because, you know, we don't. I mean, look at, amongst the reasons why it seems to me quite obvious uh, inflation would rise here, and you look at, you know, I'm not a monetarist by any means, far from it, but you look at monetary growth the past two years and you look at house prices, you know, classic, classic leading indicators, surprise, surprise, They've been telling you this is coming. Uh, and if we're going to keep pursuing these astonishingly uh, low interest rate, easy money policies, then we won't control inflation. Okay, so we can't afford high rates on the debt because we've got so much debt everywhere. And so the balance, I mean, it just seems to me, if you're in government, what you, what you want is to inflate the debt away. Well, you do what you what you do want is you want to inflate inflate it away without anybody noticing. But the problem is because of the twenty four seven world that that don't exist. Here's what here's what, and this was at the core of my attempted uh, comments to the Treasury Select Committee. I think you, I don't see a way out of that because it, you know, I think part of the idea of having inflation above target for a while, which is kind of what the Fed did with its new shift. In principle, sounds great, but the problem with that is it assumes, uh, you know, the world of the internet and uh, Instagram and and TikTok, and you know, that people don't follow what's going on. I mean, you just can't pull these things off with people being ignorant. And uh, so, 
hopefully the central bankers are waking up to that. If they really want to have inflation above target for a while, just tell us. Don't <laughs> don't don't play games because the markets will fear the worst. They'll fear that you actually don't have a clue what you're doing. Well, I don't um, think they do though. Well, that could be, but here's here's what I think they should really do. I think it's quite radical. Uh, I think the 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 08 financial crisis and the covid pandemic has demonstrated that the the fiscal debt and fiscal spending things that people like you and I were 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 taught to believe throughout our education might not be right you know there's no evidence that debt above 60% of gdp has devastated anywhere you know i Think of think of all the famous people that have lost money shorting Japanese bonds the past 30, decades, 30 years. Um, and so what, what I think we really need to get out of this trap, and, and with it the productivity trap, is to have a much more adult and sophisticated approach, to, which which require a change by the IMF, but will only happen with a bold Western country taking the lead. Let's call it a very modern uh, Gordon Brown golden rule, where, where you essentially have separate accounting for government investment spending and government consumption spending. And, and, and if it was done transparently and openly, which, by the way, would allow the likes of an India to spend properly on education and health and not, and not you know, because they don't. A lot of emerging countries, because of this IMF-style 1960s, 70s obsession with some low level of debt to GDP, none of these emerging countries ever really spend anything on health or education. So they can't get out. One of the reasons they can't get out of the low income trap is because they can't grow their uh, economic potential properly. And neither can we anymore. You know, going right back to the AMR thing, in theory, because of our review and Sally Davis, the chief medical officer, being prepared for pandemics was on the UK's risk register as one of the main priorities, hilariously. But because we hadn't actually invested in anything, when it came to the crunch, you know, we couldn't cope. Uh, I mean, this isn't a radical solution at all. I mean, every I don't, I don't think so. But when I accounts for its money in that way, so what? I mean, the government, the government accounts like a cash book. Yeah. yeah. Why, why is that? I mean, it's because it's just it's just become part of, you know. I'm glad to hear you say that, Steve. Because I sometimes think I'm going a bit round the bend when I get the reaction to this. It's, it's it's I think it's just because of it's it's groupthink and acceptance of the norm, you know. And as I said, I, I try to talk to senior IMF people about it as it relates to health, because it's bananas, you know, to to to, to constrain so many countries' attempts to truly use national. Uh, you know, your and mine taxpayers' money to invest for the future because of some arbitrary level of debt. It's just ridiculous, and because you can't you can't grow enough to get out of what the debt situation is unless you have something that's boosting the productivity performance of the country. And so you got to you got to break the cycle. And the way to do it, I think, is to have a more truly active role on government investment spending, which would mean in aggregate for a while, higher deficits to GDP, but then you wouldn't have to have such a ridiculously low monetary policy and and, and the debt burden issue of, of going from zero to 2% wouldn't be as, it would still be a problem for hugely over-indebted consumers, of course, 
but it wouldn't be as big a burden for the overall economy. But no. if we tr- if we tried to tighten money po- monetary policy without that, yeah, it's going to put us into a recession. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, I mean, I think that's a very sensible solution. But I mean, I, I, I don't really understand why we've got the system we've got. Before we go, I just wanted to ask you about this charity, Shine. Um, yes, thank you. Podcast. Um, what I've been doing in the podcast is I've been trying to promote the FT's new financial literacy charity, Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, yep. FLICE for short. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think I know, I know the guy that's behind it at the FT. It's a great thing. Uh, Patrick. Uh, actually, it's the education. Well, it's not Patrick. I personally know it's the the editor for Education and Science. Oh, All right. So. I mean, the, the the champion at FTE is Patrick Jenkins, and I interviewed yeah. him for the podcast. We did a little 15-minute... Oh, that's fantastic. Party. I didn't know that. I must listen to that. Explain about it. And I, I mean, I think, you know, it's one of these... It's one of Warren Buffett's one-foot bars. You know, it's quite an easy challenge to, to, to improve. And yeah. people lose money by taking payday loans because they don't understand the idea of yeah. compound interest. So if you yeah. just teach everybody about compound interest, then yeah. a lot of people will be better off, right? Yeah. I just was interested because I, I'm not familiar with the charity shine. And I, I was reading about it. it. It started in London. You've improved the education standards in poor areas of London. You're now moving it yeah. to the Northern Powerhouse. So yeah. do you want to just explain? Well, go, yes. Uh, thank you so much for giving me the chance, actually. I'm really grateful. It, it goes back to to what we touched on at the start in my background uh you know i i went to uh i i went to have my uh, primary and junior schooling in a in a very tough uh environment you know and the only reason i kind of really escaped from it is because of my parents uh my dad in particular obsession with education probably quite a few of those kids were just equally capable as i was um but they never had the environment or the circumstances to get out of it. So SHINE is, stands for Support and Help in Education. And it's essentially, it's now in existence for 21 years. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's basically VC for education philanthropy. And we try to back uh, initiatives that we think improve the chances of people from the most disadvantaged backgrounds achieving their education potential. Uh, and I'm extremely passionate about it. Uh, we did, we were fortunate enough to come into existence uh, during the early Blair years, uh, or, or the middle Blair years, and in particular, uh, something that influenced me quite a bit on all of how we evolved, uh, when when the, the mess of Hackney uh, resulted in them uh, introducing some, something called the Hackney Learning Trust, which essentially, uh, just for that borough, uh, imposed a new educational authority inside the council and that was at the core uh and if you reflect back on that 20 years later where hatney's educational attainment has gone of, of of actual evidence that you know with the right interventions things can improve uh and uh it, it not necessarily all because of just shine interventions but we traveled through that journey with others uh and so we decided five years ago, um, as a VC type entity, what's the point in still just being primarily in London when actually these days the severe educational challenges elsewhere 
I'm from the north of England, the whole northern powerhouse, so why not do that? So we're now headquartered in Leeds, and we're trying to do uh, a whole slew of different things, increasingly place-based uh, to many different challenge parts of the north of England. I have a very interesting project going on in North Birkenhead at the moment, and we're exploring doing some uh, more intense place-based stuff in Greater Manchester and up in the northeast. Hey, but well, I'll put so there'll be a web page around yes. it, and so yes. I'll, put, I'll I'll put some links in there and and talk about it because I think it's really you know fantastic cause. I mean, any, anything to do with kids' education is something that I, is dear to my heart. But before I let you go, mm-hmm. I just I always ask people if they could recommend a book. So if you're mm-hmm. a young person thinking of becoming an economist, what book should they read? Gosh. Oh, I mean, uh, I, th- I don't think they could do uh, much worse than than getting the getting getting hold of a copy of the Economist newspaper every week uh, or the Economist magazine. I think the Economist magazine is uh, is, is is very readable and it's very very topical and and you know it believes in in the basic concepts of economic theory quite strongly. Uh, uh, and so that, you know, you have to pay, I guess. I don't know if the economy, I think the FT, the FT has a, a thing where it's uh, uh, giving discounted, if not free access to, to school kids to the FT. But Does it? I don't, I don't know. The, the Guardian, my my elder boy reads The Guardian. And yeah, but I, I know the FT is on a bit of a, quite rightly, on a campaign in this. Uh, but um, in terms of a textbook, you know, here, here because of my age, uh you know that I'm there, there. There must be more up-to-date versions of what I always thought I would regard as the Bible, which is called Macroeconomics by Dawn, uh, Rudy Dornbush and Stanley Fisher. Uh, and actually, one of the reasons why I say that, and it goes back to my own position as economist and how I think about the so-called profession, I had the privilege uh, of meeting Rudy. Uh, in the ni- early 90s quite a bit, and mid-90s, and sadly, he, he, di- he died a decade or so ago. And I met Stan Fisher a few times. And what I love about them both, as brilliant as they became and their huge global reputations, they both didn't take themselves too seriously. They both had a, both have a stand still alive. They both have a great sense of humor. Uh, but, you know, these two together presided over uh i'm trying to guess when i can't remember exactly when it was first published so whether it's been updated or not or not but on the basic premises of macroeconomics uh it, there's not much better than than macroeconomics by dawn bush and stanley fisher why didn't you write a textbook on economics you know i've i have written a couple of books about the uh i've written three i've written two about bricks and i've written one about uh super bugs. you know my peculiarity. I think the whole book, for me personally, the whole book writing experience isn't one of the most thrilling things in life. It's you know you, you become you could become a hostage to the publishers. They want to drag you around on sort of what I regard as annoying road shows and all this kind of stuff. But oh, you're, you have- you're lucky. You're complaining. So I <laughs> I wrote a book published last year, and um, I mean it, it, it isn't. 
the only bookshop it's appeared in is in Nigeria, as far as I can, <laughs> as far as I can tell. But I, I didn't. I would have loved to have done a, you know, a book signing. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a spoiled brat. In that. Yeah, what, what, what I might do, I, I, I was saying this again to somebody yesterday. Where if all else fails to me, uh, I might write a book on the uh, a year in the life of a red knight, uh, because in that crazy two or three week mayhem when that story broke. Some some of the circumstances I found myself and on, on so many big issues of society with globalization, business, sport, and, and just being in the middle of this sort of mad global media frenzy about it. <laughs> you know, one day, one that but I'd rather do that than write a book about microcomics. Yeah, well, I think I'd, I'd rather read the book, read that book. <laughs> Jim, it is uh, always great fun to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on. All right, it's my pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me. Jim O'Neill may have become a partner at Goldman Sachs, chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, a government minister, and Baron O'Neill of Gatley, but he hasn't forgotten his humble roots. I so enjoyed him calling himself a spoiled brat when I pointed out that nobody's asked me to do a book signing, but I would still love to do one. In the podcast, Jim was critical of the Glazer family, owners of Manchester United. That's Jim's view expressed more mildly than I've heard him in private. And Jim is, of course, entitled to his personal view. But if there are any lawyers listening, I'd just like to make it clear it's not the view of this podcast. And I actually think that given the poor performance and the value of the brand, Manchester United shares might be interesting. So I'm going to take a closer look in my newsletter. Don't forget to sign up for that on my website, behindthebalancesheet.com. One thing was clear from that conversation. We may be growing more slowly in the 2020s, but we will still be reliant on the BRICS for some of that or much of that growth. Jim was unsure that inflation is here to stay in the longer term. And I guess that's probably a sensible stance to take. This is likely the last episode of this mini series on the macro world. I've learned a lot, but I think the long-term macro picture remains pretty murky and I still wouldn't own any bonds. For the rest of this year, I'm gonna switch the podcast back on to investing, including a special focus on ESG, an overused term and one which I think is widely misunderstood. Watch out for those and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you have any ideas, let us know at info at Thank you for listening.